Hello, everyone, and welcome back to A608 After Hours. We are so pleased to have with us today Annie Nickman Plancher. Um, we look forward to speaking with you, Annie. Um, but uh, first, Uche and I are going to talk about what we've been thinking about this week. This week, of course, is midterms week, so we haven't actually seen our students as much as usual, but um, they did have a midterm, and it was right around the topic that I've been thinking about. Um, but why don't we start with you, Uche? What have you been thinking about? Okay, so before I jump in, I just have to say, I know this is a podcast, but folks, <laughs> Annie is wearing the most brilliantly <laughs> yellow pair of headphones. I have to stop uh -oh. and like just rock and awe. So maybe we'll take a picture and use that as the thumbnail for this or something. But okay, that's off my chest. Moving on. So this week, what I'm thinking about, so it's actually more related to today we um, did... Um, the strategy we ran through the strategy audit with Telepizza, and that's really kind of what's on my mind. So, because I do a lot of work with nonprofits, and a lot of them are actually either doing a strategic plan for the first time or thinking about updating the strategic plan. And one of the pieces that actually came up was both in terms of thinking about strategy, thinking about competitors, but also thinking internally in terms of capacity, which is something we're going to talk later. But in all of these organizations, we're really talking about the equity piece. And a lot of them are thinking about equity and the structural and systemic aspects of equity and using systems and structures to really support equity in their organizations. Kind of for the first time. I mean, a lot of them have been thinking about equity for a while already. But thinking about how do you embed it into your strategy so it's not an additional thing or it's not something that one group is going to focus on but not everybody else. So that's a big piece of um, the conversation that I've been having with a lot of these boards and organizations. I think that's a really hard thing. Where I'm really pushing, and I think this is going to connect to the conversation we're having with Annie today, is I'm asking like what each committee to think about how does equity fit into their work? specifically finance and development, because a lot of times, and also with fundraising and finance, they think a lot of times people think of those as more technical things that you just do a certain way, and they have a lot of impact on how the organization runs and how um, equity is impacting the organization and the people the organization works with. So lots on my mind. Hopefully I will get some great ideas from she with the yellow headphones today. <laughs> Monica, what are you thinking about? Um, very similar. So it seems like with mid-October, uh, all sorts of board meetings, check-ins, and so forth are going on. And with that, um, people, I agree, Uche, are really pivoting their work to think about equity. But it's interesting because the strategic planning, they kind of put on the side. Like, this is something we need to do and even equity sometimes is disaggregated from that work. I agree with you. Um, but from class, I guess the piece that, you know, I would bring into the conversation is this idea that you can't just sit down and think up or design or even, you know, get a lot of people in the room to design a strategic plan without recognizing that you don't actually always have all the answers. That when you're thinking about entrepreneurial leadership and thinking about um, engaging in really, really difficult problems, you may not actually know exactly how to get where you need to go, which unfortunately is the way we think about strategic planning. Like we're going to do step A, B, C, D, 
when we recognize that we may not even have the right alphabet. Um, and so this notion of experimenting along the way, which we don't even like that word in education, experimenting, we don't want to experiment on kids. And putting that into the equation when we think about strategy, I think is so tricky. Um, so I'm looking forward to kind of bringing that into our conversation today with Annie. So Annie, welcome. It's great to have you. Um, I'm going to introduce you uh, briefly and then give you a chance to introduce yourself and then we'll roll right into the questions. So Annie Nickman-Plancher is Vice President of Staff and Strategy at Social Finance, where she supports the CEO and leading the organization's strategy and growth evolution in the education sector and beyond education as well. Prior to joining Social Finance, Annie was a management consultant at McKinsey, a company where she worked with education organizations and healthcare companies on organizational strategy and change. While there, she also launched in her last couple of years there at McKinsey, um, and she led as well an independent nonprofit called McKinsey Social Initiative. So she was really an entrepreneur while at McKinsey. And this initiative was focused on leveraging McKinsey's resources to address global social issues. The nonprofit's first effort, Generation, supported unemployed young people in five countries to build workforce skills and secure jobs. So this is a nice, actually, a link as well to our last podcast, which Annie, you should know, is with Angela Jackson, uh, who, you know, is at New Profit and focused very much on building um, an equitable workforce. So Annie, if you want to add to that or your own intro, we'd love to hear from you and welcome. Thank you. So excited to be here virtually. Um, and thank you for the yellow headphone shout out, Uche. I have a yellow thing. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's actually a good way to introduce myself. I'm Annie and I really like the color yellow. Um, I just think it's very happy. Um, yeah, that was, that was a great summary of sort of professionally. I mean, I think if I think back on my career, I would say two things come to mind. One is entrepreneurship, which is a term that you just used, Monica. I think um, both at McKinsey in starting generation and then um, at social finance in this role where I'm leading strategy. I feel like I was laughing that telepizza was the case that you guys have just been talking about because I feel like my life is a strategy audit. That is like what I do professionally, but like, mm -hmm. but in an entrepreneurial way. So I'm constantly starting new things and I'm constantly needing to, to audit and think about the strategy. Um, I like, I like to think about it that way. I think the other thing I would say is that you know, uh, if I had to think of a theme of all of my, my career, um, I, it really is just curiosity and, and think, and like, I, I do find myself sort of jumping from new idea to new idea. I've only actually really worked in two different settings, the McKinsey setting and then the social finance setting. But within each of those places, I've held a lot of different roles and started different things. Um, so that's the theme of entrepreneurship, but also just, um, I sort of get excitement and joy to use a Liz City word, um, through exploring new ideas, thinking strategically about them, et cetera. Um, and what else I live, I live in right outside of Boston. I'm still local and I, uh, I live here with my husband, Brian and my very adorable Cavapoo puppy named Alvin, who, if you hear barking, that's why um, <laughs> over to you. We guys. welcome that. We welcome that. Yeah. Leah. <laughs> Love to hear Alvin. Um, okay, so we're going to jump into a couple of questions here. Um, so I'll begin. So your work at Social Finance and before that at McKinsey is focused on entrepreneurship and education, as you said, entrepreneurship. 
And one of the critical school skills that you've helped others develop is this capacity to think strategically about new opportunities to find and secure necessary resources and to scale their work. So tell us, what has been the most challenging about this work, the most exciting as well? Yes. So I'll ground maybe in two experiences, just because I find speaking specifically is sometimes easier. Um, So I'll talk a little bit about McKinsey um, and starting generation. And that was definitely sort of an entrepreneurial. We were starting a new program. It was a youth employment program. The idea was to bring the research and the resources of McKinsey to bear in addressing social challenges on the ground. Um, so we set out to work with training providers and employers. We were in five different countries. They're actually now in like 30, which is so, when you get to what's most exciting, like seeing it develop later is really exciting. Um, and the idea is to help them get in-demand skills and then match them with jobs. That was sort of one big experience that I'll touch on. And then the second is actually something really relevant and on my mind right now. Um, so at social finance, I read strategy. And what is keeping me up at night right the second is that we're 10 years old. So for the past 10 years, we've made really meaningful progress in designing and launching these impact investing projects. Um, we've mobilized $150 million of capital. We've reached, you know, 20,000 or so people, but each individual project is, is still small, right? So it serves 200 to 2,000 people. And so as I look to the next 10 years, one thing that Tracy, our CEO, and I have just been thinking a ton about is how do we scale? How do we bring our tools and our way of thinking to reach more markets, more people, more issue areas? Um, and so one of the things I'm working on right now that's really relevant here is I'm, I'm assessing and prioritizing new markets to, to expand into. Um, and thinking through what's the most attractive, um, how would we test the water to your point? You can, you don't have all the information. What information do you need? And we actually use our own version of a strategic framework when we evaluate opportunities. So we look at impact and fit with the mission, financial impact or impact on our sustainability, um, potential to unlock growth, then feasibility. So what's our capacity and our expertise to deliver on this and risk? And so those are just two examples of like, um, moments that I've been thinking in this kind of entrepreneurial starting something new kind of a way. So what's most challenging? Um, I, I kind of jotted down three three things because I have a consultant's disease. Um, but the first one is bringing the organization, especially when you're on an in, entrepreneurial journey, bringing the organization on the journey with you. Um, so I'll use the social finance example I'm doing right now. This new markets discussion brings up a ton of uncertainty for the team. How does this impact my work? I'm working on the current impact investing project. Do, will these projects become obsolete? Um, a hand-in-hand scale often means less direct impact or less deep impact. That's not always true. But in this case, it actually is. A lot of the new markets I'm looking at would not involve an RCT, a randomized control trial, which is something that our impact investing projects always have. So I'm getting a lot of questions from the team. Like, is it worth that trade-off? Like this, you know, do you really want to have more impact if you're not as sure that it's that impact integrity or depth of impact that we're used to. So a lot of these questions. Um, and in terms of that one, I feel like the strategy framework and having some sort of an audit tool is actually just wildly helpful in addressing these types of concerns and bringing the team along. It's realistic and it's transparent. So you're basically walking in eyes wide open. The other thing I would say is... Um, we do a lot of piloting, and I agree that word experiment is such a hard one. But what I like to think about it instead of experimenting, it's like testing it in a small way. And so we try things out. 
we learn more, you know, we back away if something doesn't make sense, we're constantly talking. So I think there's just um, bringing people along it is a challenge that some of these tools can kind of help to, to get past that. The second thing I wrote down is uh, identifying when you can't do it alone. Um, so an example here is uh, the, the generation, the youth employment program at McKinsey. So what are things that McKinsey's good at? Analysis, research, um, conversations and, and influencing and communication. What are things that McKinsey has less, less direct experience with? actually training young people to do jobs um, or knowing about curriculum design. And so I think one of the hardest moments in starting that program was actually realizing this program is not going to be as good if we try to do this ourselves. It's actually the impact is going to suffer if we try to grow it just internally. And so we ended up shifting our model pretty entirely um, to more of a partnership model. So we would find a really best-in-class training provider already on the ground in that country, knew the local infrastructure, knew the market, had a process for bringing students in, and we partner with them. And the idea is how do we create that seamless integration between you and the employers and start those conversations that maybe aren't happening right now um, between sectors. So that was, I think, a hard realization because we wanted to do it alone, but also a really important realization that we, we could do better if we didn't. And then the third thing I wrote down is, don't try to get, don't, don't get too tied to your idea. Um, it always ebbs and flows. Um, and so, you know, in, in both of these examples, I've had moments where I just get really attached to something. I'm so excited to do this. I'm going to, it's going to roll out. It's going to save the world. Um, and the truth is, as you try things, as you pilot, I think just having that really open mindset is, is critical because you don't get stuck, right? Otherwise you hit a wall. And you, you, you don't even realize that it's not working because you're too attached. And I think being able to really um, interrogate what's happening um, without attachment is actually a really helpful part of any sort of strategic planning process, or especially if you're in an entrepreneurial or an entrepreneurial setting. Um, in terms of what's most exciting, I mean, everything. I think this is being in this entrepreneurial setting I'm, I tend to err on the more kind of curious, big picture thinker side of things. Um, so being able to really dive in, like our mission at Social Finance is mobilizing capital to drive social progress. That is the broadest mission ever. And it's really fun actually to say, okay, what do we mean by that? What is it? What, what falls within that? What's, what's legit? What's not? What are we not going to do? What is not actually mobilizing capital to drive social progress? Um, and so that's, that to me is just, a fun exploration, kind of dreaming, like, what could this mean? How could I achieve this goal that I'm trying to achieve? Um, I also think the building part has been really exciting. Um, and this is, you know, I, I personally get a lot of joy from doing the scrappy version first. I think there's something really releasing about knowing that something's going to go wrong and it's not going to be perfect. I tend to be a perfectionist. So this is a really nice way for me to kind of battle myself um, and say, you need to get it as good as you can get it. And the real key is learning. Um, and so I often find myself in positions, both at, in the generation example and often at social finance, I'm sure I will find this with the new market, where I launch something and then I'm not necessarily going to be the person who implements it over the long term, but I'm often the person who's doing it first. And so what I've had to really shift my mindset around is you're not the perfectionist. You're not actually trying to get it to be the best it can be. You want it to be the best it can be. 
your job is to actually make the mistakes and learn so that you can set the organization, the idea up for longer term success. Um, so that has been actually exciting. And then the third thing, and then I'll stop talking, <laughs> um, is people. So I think, you know, I found across my jobs, I have just gotten to partner with the most amazing people. Um, I love like one of my favorite things to do is go up to a blank whiteboard and fill it with ideas. And I think, um, I'm a very strong extrovert. So my brain enjoys and works better when I'm have another brain, um, to kind of co-brain with. And so th- that idea of, um, thinking about new ideas, testing them out, being flexible, all the things that I just said, being able to do that with other people, I just find, um, incredibly rewarding and exciting throughout. Wow, that's incredibly inspiring. All of all of that and so many different ideas, so many different ways that we can go with this. Um, I have to ask one quick follow up. Um, so, ha- you know, given everything that's going on right now with the pandemic and the stacked crises and social injustice, and we can go on and on and on. I just have to wonder um, over these years, and since you're thinking about strategy. Has your conceptualization or definition of success shifted? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I think it depends on the context. So I can talk about it maybe in the social finance context. I think, um, you know, well, in the social finance context, it's really interesting. So everything that we do is about impact, right? So our whole model, and I didn't really explain this, um, but the model of social finance is that we try to tie financing to outcomes. Um, and so, you know, rather than in traditional impact investing, you invest in, uh, I'll use an ed- education example, you invest in an ed tech company, Coursera, whatever it is, and you make money when that ed tech does well. That's the traditional model. In our model, you invest in a um, after school program, an apprenticeship program, and you actually get money when the high school graduation rate goes up or the, you know, the students get placed in college or persistent in a post-secondary setting. And so it's really tying that financing to, to the outcomes on the ground. I think that at a micro level, um, the way that we've had to think about success has had to shift in all of these settings. Um, because just because of the the nature of, you know, when you're having a macroeconomic thing happen and you're trying to make micro impact, you all of a sudden have to reevaluate, like, what does good look like? Um, and so we've had a number of projects and, you know, a lot on the workforce side, actually funny that you mentioned Angela. Angela, we are, I, I talk to her all the time. (laughs) We are actually doing very similar, similar work. Um, but that's an area where, Job placement is an outcome that we measure too. Well, in COVID, job placement is really hard. You know, how do you actually measure to that? So we've had to really think about what are the indicators? What are the, um, like, how do you rethink success? Is it, you know, before it was like a four month window, maybe it's a six month window now. Um, one thing that we've been doing with a lot in the job placement in particular is, how do you not worry about retention at a specific job, but really thinking about what are you trying to actually get at? Are you actually trying to get someone to get a job and keep that same job for 10 years? Or are you actually trying to get them to be in a place where they have a livelihood and they have a stable source of income and they can really, you know, uphold their family? And so is actually looking at their wages and their stability and their well-being, like maybe that's actually more important. So I think we've, we've really been, I don't have the answer 
Um, but we've really been interrogating how we think about what success looks like on our at the project level. I would say that at a macro level, strategy level, um, I think you know the one the big shift for me has been, uh, and this is a total tangent, but going up to the macro. When I was at McKinsey, sort of in younger part of my career, thinking really about content, success was doing getting the program right, having the impact. And I'm not saying that it's not that now. It definitely still is. But I think that something that's changed for me um, is that I, I incorporate in my measure of success, one of the first things I said here, which is like people coming along with me. Like, I think that that sustainability of an effort and the buy-in, that actually feels equal, if not more important than like having this shiny thing that works. Um, and so I, it's actually changed my behavior a lot in that I'm not so focused on like my little notebook and writing down the perfect thing. And I'm much more focused on just talking to people, asking questions, um, and really trying to co-create and learn, uh, and, it's actually, I think it's better. And this, I don't know if it's controversial. Like I would rather have a program that's not in my mind perfect, but that everyone I'm working with is really excited about and it's going to stay beyond me and it's going to like really be great. Like that to me is, is a higher success um, that people are coming along with me. That's great. Um, so Amy, you've talked about um, being an extrovert. You've talked about working at McKinsey. You've talked about your kind of real curiosity and openness to learning. Can you tell us anything um, that you feel your um, your race and your identity, um, how either, I mean, these are two dimensions. You could be thinking about other dimensions that um, when you think about your background and where you come from, in addition to your work experience and your natural traits like extroversion, how do those influence how you enter this space, how you do this work? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I mean, I think two things pop into my mind. One is uh, age. I, I work on it every year, but, you know, it doesn't go up exponentially. Um, and, you know, I have, I also, you can't see me on the phone, but I look like I'm 12 and I've looked like I was 12 since I was 12. Um, and so I, I assume I'll look like that for quite a while, which is a good thing. Um, but I do, I have found in a lot of, uh, professional settings, um, you know, more at McKinsey because it was a more kind of big firm with lots of, of folks, um, getting questions around my age. Um, and you know, is this the right leadership for an effort? Um, and I still get that, mm -hmm. frankly. I think I'm the youngest person on our leadership team at social finance, um, by, by a, quite a few years. Um, and I think, you know, I've had to really kind of build the trust there to be pulled into the really high level strategy questions that I am now. Um, so mm -hmm. age is one. And then the second I would say is, um, and I'll talk about, I guess, both of those, um, both of these together. The second is, um, uh, or maybe there are three. There's something around coming with a consultant background and like taking that business approach that gets you credibility in a lot of spaces, but actually doesn't get you a lot of credibility in a lot of spaces, um, particularly with um, some of our service providers or the people who are doing the on the ground work. And I incredibly respect this because I don't have experience doing the on the ground work. And so I think both with the age thing and with the coming in from this like consultant businessy background thing. Um, I've just had to 
really ask more questions than I state things. I frequently do not speak first, even though I always have something to say. Um, and I, I've tried to enter spaces with extreme humility, um, which is sometimes easy because I really don't know anything. And so it's pretty easy to say, I don't know anything. I just want to learn. Um, but I think it's, it's, um, it can be, it can be, you, you can be not trusted in those spaces, both because you're young and because you don't seem to have any relevant experience. And I think acknowledging that and then figuring out where I can bring something to the table and what I can offer um, is, is always a priority for me. Like, how can I synthesize the conversation? That's something that, you know, has been a skill of mine. So it's like, oh, let me summarize the next steps or do something that is adding value. Um, and just sort of rolling up my sleeves and trying to, um, to dive in slowly. The third one I was going to say is that I just am very energetic all of the time. And I've had to, uh, really get used to working with introverts and others who are not so energetic or, um, uh, rushing in their brain so fast. And so that has just been a learning about kind of how I ask other people questions and try to move a little more slowly in the world, um, which I'm not doing on this phone call, but I promise I do in professional settings. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Annie. This is, this is amazing. Like it's so um, helpful to hear you think, talk a little bit about how your identity impacts the way you, um, go about your work and the that piece around being a consultant and how it may actually read differently depending on context I found very powerful both in that being the case at least as you've experienced it but also the your ability to step back and be aware of that piece and then thinking about the age piece which I which I faced maybe 30 years ago when I was 12 <laughs> or maybe more than 30 years ago um Actually, they celebrated my birthday, so they know that I was 14, 30 years old. <laughs> so we can't play around there. But the importance of the awareness of it and also being able to then be willing to make changes to the way you interact based on those pieces. I want to ask a question that actually goes back to something you said earlier. When Monica asked you about um, how do you define success, I think the first thing I remember you saying was, well, it depends on the context. And so I found that very powerful. And that's something that we always push our students to really think about context is king, context is important, so on and so forth. So I wonder if you had some takeaways for folks who may be working not in social, in the context of like social finance or in um, a venture philanthropy organization, but maybe perhaps in the more traditional public sector. Um, Based on some of the things that you talked about, but maybe we can start with you talking about that idea of getting resources, whether they be financial, physical, or even just buy-in around piloting, we we won't use the word experimentation, and getting buy-in to try new things. Um, so let's start with that. Any thoughts on that? Getting resources to try new things. In a different context, it's not like an organization whose mission and specific context is <laughs> to support that. Yep, yep. Um, it's hard. It's even hard in my context. So I think it's even harder when you're when you're in a context of a non-impact investing firm. Um, I mean, a couple of things that I always think about and um, 
One is that resources are more than money. So you, you actually said this, Uche, but I'll repeat it back to you. I think people are some of the best resources that you can get. Um, and so really evaluating like who's around me, who wants to help, who has the right skills to help, going back to something I said before, who has the skills that I don't have. Um, those are actually resources in my mind, almost equal to financial ones. Um, I think another thing I've learned, and this isn't maybe the answer that you'd want to hear, but timing is a real chicken and an egg thing. Um, and so, you know, this is sort of bringing some learnings from my context into the other context, but, you know, looking for someone to pay for a new pilot that's a brand new idea can be one of the hardest things to do. Um, it is easier to get someone to pay for the second round or to show them some of what you're doing and have them get excited about it. So I think it's finding ways to bridge that timing gap, um, whether it's a really scrappy version of your pilot um, or something that can kind of start to demonstrate what it is that you're doing. Um, I have found, and we, I, I would say we do this too, like, and, and in my funder situation, like, it's hard to get someone to just buy onto an idea. It happens. It really does happen. But once you have it a little more like tested and even saying this is what didn't work, that's actually like more compelling because, because it, it's more confidence inspiring. And then the third thing I would say is, um, maybe also not popular, um, in education in particular, but I, I do think that people like to see a long term business model. And so, as wonderful as any idea is, you have to be thinking long term around like what's the what's the sustainability plan for this idea? Um, is it going to be publicly funded in the long term? Is it going to be is it going to be rely on philanthropy for the rest of the time? Is it going to be a fee for service model? Is it going to be a mix of that? Is there a way I could bring in innovative financing? You don't have to do that at first, but I think. Um, it actually sometimes changes the nature of the design of what you're doing. And so understanding the different business model options up front and being able to kind of test as you go and having that vision to say to people who you're looking for resources from, um, that feels really important to me. Um, I think a lot of funders get scared at paying for something that they think, okay, well, I'm going to give you X amount of money now and then in order for it to continue, like it's just going to die unless you can find someone else to give you X amount of money. Like that's not a great situation for a funder. So almost to put yourself in the mind of the person who you're asking for the resources, like what would you want to give resources to? Um, and how can you catalyze more resources and like think about thinking in the long term, even though you're acting in the short term. Mm -hmm. Can I ask one quick follow-up to that? So when I initially phrased the question, I think I was saying, okay, so take from your experience, what recommendations would you have for people in the public sector? But it dawned on me that you talked about one of your tweaks to your approach is you do a lot of partnerships now. So, and you might have spoken a little bit to this when you mentioned um, that there's some people on the ground who are doing, who have different sets of expertise and experiences than you. Are you running into different sets of risk tolerances with some of the partners that you're working with, however much you can talk about it? And how do you deal with it or how do you address it? Definitely. I mean, I think that um, the short answer is you deal with it by having it take longer, <laughs> which is not always great. But sometimes that's more important to have it take a little longer, but actually deal with it rather than move faster and not deal with it and then have it come back later. Um, we definitely deal with different risk tolerances. I mean, uh, the work that we do, we have 
often a public sector entity, um, whether that's like a local, uh, you could even put it, we've never actually worked in a, with a district, but you could put it in like a state education agency as an example. You have a public sector entity, you have impact investors who want to have impact, but they also want their money back. Um, and then you have someone who's actually delivering out, delivering services. And then you have the people who are being delivered services too, who you're actually trying, the whole thing is designed to help them. Um, and so if you don't forget about them, I mean, forget about it. Um, which actually goes back to one of the first things you said, um, Uche, which is how do you embed equity into your whole strategy? And that is like fundamental. And I'm not, I don't think that social finance is a grade A on this, but we're, we're really thinking about it. And it's like, if you don't design what you're doing, especially as an intermediary, someone who sits at the middle of all these partners and we're not actually delivering the services, if we don't think about who we're trying to, help or, you know, help, help them do something. If we don't think about them and bring their voice in, what we're doing actually just loses so much weight and potential impact. So it's, it is, it, you actually can't think about, you know, we talk about our DEI strategy. You can't think about that on a standalone. You have to really think about it on every project, every, every product, every business line. Um, I think that we, we do find ourselves typically the impact investors, um, have, a lower risk tolerance. The government actually often has the lowest risk tolerance. They don't want to pay for something that didn't work. Um, and then you have the service provider who's like, I really want to do my cool thing. And so it's, it, you know, all of our projects, we just, it takes time. And it really, like the fundamental thing that we do is aligning on a vision. And it's actually going back now to my tangent, which is the, the people and putting like the outcomes at the center. And that's actually why we think what we do is so cool. Before we do anything, you have to all agree on what the change is that you're trying to see in the world or for those individuals who you're working with. You have to agree on what, what, what needle you're trying to move and how far you're trying to move the needle. And once you actually design everything around those outcomes and the change you're trying to see in the world, you're not designing it around a program. You're not designing it about mm-hmm. returns. You're designing it around outcomes. All of a sudden, you can start to have those conversations and trade-offs because you know what the priority is. The priority isn't the government or the investors or the service provider, frankly. The priority is the outcomes. And people always ask me, who's your client at Social Finance? And we say it and it sounds kind of cheesy, but we say the outcomes are our clients. That's the whole purpose. We're here for the outcomes. Um, and so that's, that's how I think about kind of balancing risk tolerance is time and shared vision go a long way. Excellent. Thank you. Monica, what she just said reminds me a little bit of, remember when we were talking with Stefan around hard-coded moral, like, principles and and versus norms and, like, how you you think about it? This, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of resonance here. That's true. That's true. And how you go about getting to those outcomes and being true to your values along the way, even though the pathway might look different. So I love that the client is your outcomes. That's is the outcome or outcomes are your client. Um, I love thinking about that. At the same time as some other things you said about this notion of, you know, experimenting, although we don't like to use that word, kind of being scrappy and engaging in pilots and um, trying something out that, you know, there may be different ways to get there. And you may, you have to stay curious. You have to stay um, humble I loved even just how you, even in this this interview, you said, you know, we have a ways to go as a firm on certain things, DEI, and we have we don't know all the answers in terms of the fields and the areas that we're entering. And there's just um, having that curiosity, having that humility, asking questions, not speaking all the time, all of this. 
um, is critical when you're working in, you know, unknown territory. So um, it's been a real pleasure listening to you. You've got us all energized um, and with the yellow and, you know, seeing how this work can be so much fun and and exciting as well. So we thank you. But um, I'm going to remember mostly, I think, that the, the outcomes are our client. I love that. Love that. How about you, Jay? Kind of in that same line, I'm still stuck on um, sustainability and buy-in, um, getting people to come along yeah. with you. It's so important. I remember when you were talking about how do you define success? And it's not just about having the perfect organization or the perfect project, but it's about making sure that it's sustainable and that you're getting people to come along with you. And that reminds me, Monica, a little bit of our thinking about how team effectiveness and that whole breakdown mm-hmm. of um, thinking not just about performance, but about like member well-being and learning and growth that happens there, which connects for me to sustainability. So thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Hey, Annie, do you mind if we end with a couple of quick rapid fire questions? Not at all. Okay. So our um, first one we like to ask our guests is what's your favorite dessert? Um, well, I got a hint that there's an ice cream theme. Um, so I will deviate <laughs> from that a little bit, but this is true. My favorite dessert is when you have two freshly baked chocolate chip cookies and then you put ice cream in between them and have an ice cream sandwich. Mm. And what kind of ice cream do we put in between? I'm actually, I wouldn't say agnostic because I, I do have opinions, but it, you can't, for me, it's like either <laughs> chocolate based, mint based cookie base like oh. I don't want I don't want anything fruity I would say I'd rule out all fruit and vanilla is Ooh. fine but then you need sprinkles to put on the outside to add some <laughs> texture oh, <laughs> I really was thinking about this oh my gosh so tasty <laughs> yum um let me ask you a slightly different question Annie so given the context that we're in stat crises as Monica has talked about earlier what is one thing you're grateful for now? Um, this is a light answer, but my dog. Um, I think it's been, as an extrovert, it has been very hard to be home all day, every day. And I will say my dog brings, he brings me joy because he is so joyful and he doesn't, he loves quarantine. If, if anything, he's like, this is great. Oh, yeah. Mom and dad are home all day. They take me for a walk. And he sits in my office. I have this little window seat in my, what I've created as my home office. And he just sits here all day, every day. And it's it's just so joyful. Um, so I'm very grateful for him. Oh, lovely. Um, and last question. What's one thing you wish somebody had told you about life after Harvard Graduate School of Education? You don't need to have it all figured out. <laughs> um, I think when I left the EDLG program, it was like, oh, I'm going to know what, I, what I'm going to do now. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the thing that I'm going to be. Um, and then I had a moment, maybe a year in, and Monica, I'm sure we talked about this, um, where I was like, I don't know if I'm the thing that I'm going to be. Um, and that's okay. I think it's been really exciting to have my role within social finance. I haven't left social finance since I left EDLD, but I have had my role change. Um, and it keeps on changing. You know, people leave, the organization grows. There's this great article that everyone should read about giving up your Legos. It's an HBR article. I will find it. Um, and it's basically like, in order to grow, you actually have to be uncomfortable and you have to be willing to give things up and build a new Lego tower. And that's really inspiring to me. And I, I wish I hadn't exited thinking like, 
this is your job for the rest of your life. You have it figured out because I don't think anyone ever has it figured out. And that's kind of what's fun. You guys are laughing. <laughs> Do you know why I'm laughing? Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to send you a picture. I'm in the Lego room, Annie. I'm in Michaela's <laughs> room, which is the Lego room. So you can find and I Lego literally just. <laughs> oh, well, yes, I just picked off a piece. I better put it back. But <laughs> I just showed my students today. In fact, the computer is sitting on top of it's on the Lego table. So but I can build new Legos is what you're saying. Always yes. looking for a new Lego thank tower. <laughs> Love it. Well, Annie, thank you so much for being with us today. It's wonderful thank to hear about you. So thank much. you for having me. It is. It's so fun. I, I this is like something I look forward to every year. So I'm so glad it could happen even when we're all home. <laughs> 